Hey, good morning, y'all. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. And uh, this morning we're continuing our sermon series, You Can Change. We're looking at four critical truths uh, that um, seem very, very simple on the surface, but are actually fairly deep and profound because these four critical truths about God speak to the why of our behavior more than the what. Right? So when it comes to the beginning of a new year, we're often looking at the what of our behavior. What are the things that we do and what are the things we want to change? Right? What, what are the habits we want to develop? What are the habits we want to break? Uh, what are the, you know, we want to lose weight, we want to gain mo- uh, money, we want, we want to read more books, we, we want to get greater education, we, we want to spend more time intentionally on projects or with our family. Right? We, we're looking at the what. These four critical truths have uh, the power to show us the why, which is way more important, because why we do what we do is way more important than what we do, right? It is the, the why that ultimately shapes the goal, and it is the goal that ultimately shapes the behavior, and it's way more important to understand the why, because what will end up happening if we don't is we will achieve our goals and end up in a place we never intended to go. We'll, we'll end up um, changing in ways we thought we never could, and, and, and we'll end up getting results we never intended to get. It's way more important to understand the why than it is the what, right? And these four critical truths are very simple, right? First week, we looked at the fact that, that God is um, great, right? So we can take the right risks. Last week, we saw that God is good, so we can get clean. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the reality that God is glorious, and next week, we'll be looking at God is gracious. So today, we're going to be considering the glory of God, right? God is glorious. Uh, I'll give away the punchline now so you can stop trying to be so impressive, okay? That's the punchline. God is great, so you can stop fronting. You can stop pretending. You can stop pushing your resume out in every conversation or in specific environments to try to gain um, respect or influence, right? This need to be impressive, this need to be seen and, and valued, uh, to be seen as significant, as weighty, uh, this need is cross-cultural uh, and ubiquitous, right? It is central to human, human existence. We find it in every culture. Now, the rules change in every culture. What, what each culture considers weighty or important or impressive or worthy of respect changes, right? The, 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 the garments change, but not the central motivation, right? What we consider respectful. And it's true of every culture. It's true of every subculture. It's even, it's even true in the church. This was something that I found that was kind of interesting. I remember early on uh, analyzing my own heart, right? After I became a believer. I was 17 when I became a believer, came out of a really non believing background, so it was a sudden change. And, um, you know, what I found was, was that those same motivations to get glory, to seek significance, they stayed the same. It was just what I started chasing changed, right? Or others around me, right? Um, I found that there were some people who studied theology a lot, um, but it wasn't because they wanted to know God. It wasn't even because they wanted to know a lot about God. It was actually because knowing a lot about God gained them a lot of attention and respect in this new circle of friends, right? That there were people who sought knowledge, even esoteric knowledge, like, like 
um, technical knowledge, not, not because it necessarily enhanced their relationship with God or helped them to love God more deeply, but because it gained them a certain amount of weighty respect with people around them. They started getting a reputation. They started getting a platform. Uh, they, you know, like the motivation, right? The, the rules change, but the motivation stays the same, right? And in almost all cultures, one of the most important tools used, and this is, this is true for almost all cultures, um, one of the most important tools used to gain respect or weightiness or significance is money. Because money can open a lot of doors, right? Money can open doors for me. Money can open doors for people who know me, hang out with me, curry my favor, right? And so people who have a lot of money are almost always considered weightier and more significant in any given culture because they have freedoms other people don't have, right? Um, Money is like the key that, that could unlock almost any door to honor and influence if you're willing to use it and able to use it, right? Um, and I saw this uh, in my early days of the journey, right? When, when I was in education for 17 years and when I left uh, that after I was a teacher and a principal, I, I went to work full-time, major career shift uh, for the journey, the church over in St. Louis, a megachurch. Um, and I was the family pastor, and, and it was in the early days, and man, it was just, the thing was growing like crazy. We were doubling in size every single year. Like, that is ridiculous um, from an from a organizational standpoint. It was, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. Um, and uh, Darren was, was a very, very influential leader during that season. We weren't just a regionally known church. Darren was developing a nationally known platform. I mean, we were one of the fastest growing churches in America, and um, and so as a result, it attracted a lot of people. It attracted a lot of attention. We started getting um, just a lot of people showing up. And we had a guy show up who started making a lot of very large donations, right? And you notice that, right? When somebody has that kind of wealth and they start flashing it, right? It, it either means they're very, very generous or they want a lot of attention. Um, and the real question is which? And, and uh, this guy started giving a lot of money and we found that he started asking for a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with leaders. He wanted, to, he wanted to, to have a lot of face time uh, with critical leaders in the church, and uh, he wanted to be known. Um, and, then, uh, and then in membership class, um, he just was kind of talking it up. A lot of people don't realize that in membership class, the, the elders aren't there just teaching, they're there listening. Right? We're actually learning about the people who are seeking uh, membership as much as the members are trying to learn about the church, they're considering joining. And, and in this context, this guy... Um, was just kind of boastful, uh, and, and he was pretty regularly kind of floating it out there. Man, this church, man, it's filled with young people, which is awesome. These young leaders, man, they have so much energy. They, they have so much. They're creating all this chaos, and that's awesome, but it's a good thing that people like us are starting to show up, people who are older, people who have some business experience, people who know how to structure things and organize things, people who are able to, to really give this place some direction so that, so that it has a, a, you know, it's just good that we're, we're showing up here, right? Here's the thing, at the end of every membership process, there's always an interview, and, um, and that interview isn't meant to put people on the, on the spot, it's really just meant to have an honest conversation about where they are, who they are, where, you know, why they're joining the church, and, and making sure it's a good fit for everybody. And, uh, and at his membership interview, um, it, it took an interesting turn, right? At that one, uh, we met with him, and, and, and we're like, man, we're glad you're here, we're glad you're here, we love you, and, and we're thankful that you're excited about the church, but... We think we need to tell you something. We think you need to know that, that um, you're not going to be able to buy influence here. 
Like, like we know you have a lot of money. We know you have a lot of business success. But I think it's just important for you to realize that, um, that that's not the way it works here, right? Um, your money, your business experience, that's not, that's not what impresses us, right? We're glad God has blessed you in that way. But you seem to want influence. And if you want influence, you need to realize that the path to influence here is earned through humility and service, not, not through giving and, um, and, and seeking one-on-one conversations with leaders. It was, a, it was an awkward conversation. It was an awkward interview, as you can imagine. Um, and, uh, and at one point, he looked at us, and he's like, all right, this is, you just, no one has ever talked to me like this before. And, and we were like, we're not trying to be rude. We, we love you. Um, this is us just simply inviting you. If you're going to be a member, this is, we want it to be clear, right? Now here, it was a crazy conversation. What's even crazier is that he listened. And coming out of that conversation, uh, he started shifting. And he actually started growing. Like we found him actually serving in ways without looking to be noticed for his service. We found him joining teams where he didn't have to be the leader. We, we found him continuing to give generously but without looking for the perks that come with, with generous giving. I mean, that was a real win. That was pretty amazing. And what, was, what that really showed me was that when someone really gets a hold of this truth, that God is glorious, it frees me to stop trying to be so impressive. When I can come to rest in God's glory instead of compete and try to build my own, it frees me. It frees me into generosity. It frees me into love. It frees me out of competitiveness. It frees me into contentment. God is glorious, so we can stop trying so hard to impress others. All right, let's take a look at our text. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Go go over to Philippians 2. If you have a Bible, Philippians 2. If you're using one of ours, go ahead and grab one off the chair around you. And we're going over to page 980. Page 980, if you're using your app, go ahead and open your app. We're going over to Philippians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10 this morning. Philippians 2, 3 through 10. A profoundly beautiful chapter this morning that we're only going to be able to skim the surface of, but I love it every time we get to come over to this chapter. All right, Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all, before we talk about our passage... Um, I want to take a moment and talk about our problem. (laughs) Why do we crave attention? Why do we crave the praise of of people, people we don't even know, right? 
people we don't value? Why do we value their opinion of us so highly when, when we know nothing about them or even know whether their opinion is even worthy of, of pursuing, right? Why are we so aware of how people see us and perceive us? Why are we so concerned? What, what's going on there? Why do we crave the praise of others? And at the root of it, I believe it is this. I believe that all of us, all of us have shame. And shame very simply is um, a sense that we have something to hide, right? Guilt is about what we do. Shame is about who we are, right? So I feel guilt when I do something bad. I feel shame uh, when there's an internal realization or, or an internal message that says I am bad, right? Guilt is about what we do. Shame is about what we are. And as a result, we want to hide our shame. We all do. We want to clothe it. We want to keep it hidden. If there's something about us that is worthy of censor, if there's something about us that is worthy of condemnation, if there's something about us that is worthy of judgment, if there's something about us that, that we believe is, is ugly, what are we going to do with it? Well, same thing we do all the time, right? We do our best to cover our ugly stuff <laughs> and promote our pretty stuff, right? We do our best to, to lead out with our, our best foot forward, whatever it is, right? We do our best to present ourselves, to, to, to push out an image of ourselves, to, to shove out a resume of who we are and why we're valuable, right? We, we try to hide our shame. We have the sense that we have something to hide, a dishonor to be covered. So we try to cover it. With what? With things people praise. We try to cover our shame with things that people praise. Because if they praise those things, they will praise us when we cover ourselves with those things. Now, here's the thing, and I, need to be, I want to be clear here because I, I'm, I know I'm speaking to actually multiple groups right now. There are people who, their, their root motivation is they want to be liked. They just want to be liked, and they want to be thought of as likable. <laughs> Because if they're liked, it means there's something about them attractive and they crave that. They just crave that approval. That they crave that, that something about me is lovable and it attracts your attention and that makes me feel safe or it makes me feel worthwhile or it makes me feel significant, right? There's something about that that, that I crave, right? So some people want to be liked. Some people don't care about being liked. Some people want to be respected. All right, they couldn't give a rip whether you liked them, but they definitely give a rip whether you respect them. They, they want to be held with a, with a weightiness. They want to be seen as important and, and smart or powerful or, or significant, whatever it is, right? So they're, they're, not, they're not working in order for people to like them. They're working to make sure that, that when they walk into a room, their presence is felt, that, that, that there's something about them that that provokes a, a response, right, of, of maybe even fear. Um, then there are, there's a small group in here that honestly, your people, you don't even care. Like, you're like, man, Steve, I don't fit either one of those groups. I don't care whether people like me. I don't care whether people respect me. I only care what I think. There you go. You're performing for an audience of one. The one that you're trying to curry the favor from is yourself. You are trying to live up to some internal set of expectations. You are trying to, to live into an image of yourself that you know isn't fully true. And you beat yourself up when you don't get there. And you feel very, very content when you think you do, but you never quite do, honestly, right? 
Um, and, and so here's the thing. You're going to have to, as I go through this, you're going to have to tweak what I'm saying a little bit to fit how, how you do this. We all do it. But we all do it in different ways, and we all do it for, for different reasons, right? Uh, but here's the thing. At the end of the day, we're still trying to cover ourselves with what other people find attractive or what other people find powerful or what I find worthy of praise, and, and I want to be worthy of my own praise and live up to my own standards. Here's the thing. If people don't value it, we don't want it, right? We want to cover ourselves with whatever it is that people value, right? It's like a guy walking around flashing Monopoly money. You're like, yeah, nice collection, buddy. Uh, bye, right? I mean, there's no, there's no weightiness to that. There's no, why? Because it doesn't matter how much you collect of something I don't value. <laughs> I'm not going to be impressed. I'm not going to be attracted. I'm not going to in any way ascribe greater value to you because you're not covering yourself with something that I want or I value. No, we, we cover ourselves with what other people praise and value or what we ourselves praise and value. If people praise something on us or people praise something about us, it allows us to believe that the glory is actually us. That it's not just what I'm wearing, that it's not just what I own, that it's not just a position that I've claimed, that it's not just um, an accomplishment, it's actually me, right? It's actually me, that the glory isn't out there, it's in here. And the problem, this problem, this addiction goes all the way back to the beginning, right? When we go back to Genesis 3, our first parents rebelled against God. Uh, and, and the text tells us in Genesis chapter 3, with kind of a, I don't know if there's a, a humor in the original Hebrew about this, but I find it quite humorous. Like, when they hear God coming, they do, they've done two weird things, right? As soon as they've sinned against God, they realize they're naked. They sew fig leaves together, and they cover themselves with fig leaves. All right, that's weird and funny. Okay, and then when they hear God, the creator God, the all-powerful God of the universe coming into the garden in the cool of the evening, because in the evening God would manifest himself and walk with them in the cool of the evening and discuss their day and have community with them, they hid in the bushes like, like there are other people around and God might not notice, like he's there to see them. And they're hiding in the bushes like toddlers, hiding behind the curtains, right? I mean, it's it's childish. It is ridiculous. And then, and then when he's like, hey, y'all, uh, hey, where are you? Right? And they come out of the bushes. He's like, uh, what's up? What's up with the fig leaves? Just kind of curious. Oh, uh, you know, well, I don't know. We, we thought it looked good. It's not like we have anything to hide. No, we just, you know, we just thought it looked good kind of improving on things. What do you think, right? Fig leaves? I mean, seriously, it's ridiculous. It is, it is, uh, it is humorous. It is, they had just committed cosmic treason. They had just betrayed the creator God who had made them in their own image. And they're hiding behind fig leaves. All right, we can laugh at them all we want, but humanity has been sowing fig leaves together ever since. 
The only difference is we think we're more sophisticated. We don't, we don't, we don't actually sew fig leaves together. That's silly. No, we use awards and titles, possessions and education, the size of our house, the size of our Twitter following. We set goals to read more books, lose more weight, make more money. Why? To cover the shame and try to prove our worth. But our awards, our achievements, our possessions, listen, y'all, they don't cover us any better than fig leaves. God sees right through the stuff we're trying to decorate ourselves with. He sees right through our our inexpert sewing together of accomplishments and, and things that, that, that distract and deceive people and, and win people's praise. God sees who we truly are. When God looks at us, we are exposed, absolutely, completely exposed. There are no hidden behaviors from God. And even more terrifying, there are no hidden motivations. He knows why we've done what we've done. Right? He not only sees our bad behavior, but he sees our bad motivations for the good things we've done. We stand completely exposed in our selfishness, in our, in our tiny little self-glorying, in our vanity, in our pride, in our, in our fear. Right? Scripture tells us in Romans 3 that we all fall short of the glory of God. That is the normal and shared human experience. We all fall short of the glory of God. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to be clothed with the honor of God, but we all fall short of the glory of God. And as much as our first parents, we stand exposed in that lack of glory. We look just as foolish before God, trying to hide that lack of glory behind our modern money instead of the ancient fig leaves or our modern education and accomplishments more than, than hiding in the bushes. We simply cannot remove an internal sense of shame with external ornaments of glory and honor. It doesn't matter how many accolades you accumulate. It doesn't matter how many promotions you get. It doesn't matter how many times you upgrade your car, your office, your job, or, or your friends or your spouse. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you simply cannot remove an internal sense of shame with external ornaments of glory and honor. And so we don't, we don't need to work for more glory to remove our shame. Follower of Christ, we need to recognize this motivation for what it is. Our attempt to be like God, to create a competing glory to God, to make ourselves worthy of glory apart from God. We don't need to work for more glory to remove our shame. We need to rest in God's glory to find comfort and the removal of our shame. Because it's in relationship with the God of glory that our shame is removed and we're covered in true glory. The glory of our God instead of the glory of ourselves. Listen, we were never intended to fight for glory. We were created to rest in his glory. And Philippians 2 is an invitation to that rest. Philippians 2 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, it is uh, profoundly poetic, theologically complex, very deep, uh, but honestly, very simple to understand on its, on its surface. Uh, this passage is an exhortation, right? It is rich in Christology. In other words, it is completely and profoundly focused on the person of Christ. It tells us a lot about Jesus. 
But the focus of the passage isn't primarily to teach us about Jesus. It's to call us to imitate Jesus. It is calling us to a way of doing life, right? It's calling us to honor our calling in Christ by being appropriately humble. Not because we're lowly servants in the house of God and God is glorious and we should be groveling in front of Him, but because our God is humble Himself. Listen, humility isn't a punishment for having low honor. It is the true glorious expression of the highest honor. Did you catch that? Because that's completely counterintuitive for us, right? Humility isn't a punishment for having low honor. It is actually the true glorious expression of the highest honor, right? Take a look at verses 5 and 6. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? He existed in the form of God. So he's speaking about Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, before Jesus became human, right? Paul's kind of pulling back the curtain, same as John 1 did, and we've been kind of hitting this theme a lot over the last couple of months, right? But, but looking at this idea that, that Jesus in his pre-incarnate state existed in the form of God, right? Now, when he puts it that way, he's not indicating that he looked like God but wasn't God. The word form here, morphe, uh, means the, the exact imprint or expression. Morphe theo is the phrase, right? That he was in the form of God. It means that he, was, he was the exact imprint and expression of God. The only way you can be the exact imprint and expression of God is if you are God, right? That, that's just the only way. There are no good imitations of God. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's not, uh, when we look at like the watch market, you have these, these uh, knockoffs, these, you know, instead of having a Rolex, you have a Folex, right? And, and, and some of them are pretty high quality, to the point where you have to be almost a genuine horographer, a person who actually studies watches to know the difference, right? And that's because as great as a, as a, a Swiss timepiece is, it can be imitated. You can't imitate God. There's no such thing as a good imitation of God, right? So when it says that Jesus existed in the form, that he was the exact imprint and expression of God, what it means is that he existed as God, right? But he didn't consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped, right? He didn't consider equality with God, something to be held in a tight fist of refusal that says, I will never release my right. I will never release my experience of my glory, right? But what does it mean to hold the equality of God with an open hand, right? Take a look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, but instead Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? He existed in the form of God. He was God himself, but he emptied himself. This is, the theological term for this is kenosis. And that actually comes from the Greek word for empty, which is kano'o, okay? And, and theologians argue a lot about the, the specific distinctives of the kenosis. What does it mean, in other words, for Jesus to empty himself, right? When he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, kano'o, when he, when he, when he, what does that mean? Um, to, the word itself means to empty or to pour out. Metaphorically, it's used in other passages to mean to give up status, 
or privilege. Um, I think it's important to know that, that when, Jesus, when it says that Jesus emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his essential attributes of Godhood. Jesus didn't become less than God. He didn't empty himself of his knowing everything. He didn't empty himself of, of his being transcendent to time and timeless. He didn't empty himself of his intrinsic glory. Why? Because if God were to give up any of his essential attributes, he would in fact become less than God. What defines God as God is the combination of his unique attributes. God cannot become less than God and remain God. And so when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it absolutely does not mean that he gave up any of his essential attributes. What it does mean is that he emptied himself of his right to be treated as God. He didn't give up his glory, but he gave up his right to the manifestation of his glory. He gave up his right to be treated with the respect and the weightiness that was due to his character, to his name, to who he was, right? He emptied himself of his status and his privilege, right? He remained God, completely worthy, but he gave up his right to be treated as worthy. He emptied himself of the experience of that equality, of the experience of his glory. He emptied himself of the right to be treated like God. Listen, isn't this unique and interesting? And I think it's worth pausing. Where we fight to cover ourselves with stolen glory, we have a Savior who voluntarily laid aside his intrinsic glory. And I think it's worth thinking about because it's instructive to us. Where we're trying to just heap things upon us to cover ourselves, like, like, like accolades, awards, money, praise, right? I did this thing, and it's important that I not only did it, but it's important to me that I know you know I did it, right? How much does that hurt when you accomplish something, and then people come along, and they're like, hey, wasn't that great, and they don't know you did it? How much do you chafe against that? Like, hey, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. You're right. That was glorious, and that's my glory. I want the credit, Right? How much do you hate it when somebody else, in fact, claims the credit for what you've accomplished? They've stolen your glory. Something you think should be clothing you and radiating your goodness, and it's yours. I will not release that. I will fight for that, right? And it only makes sense because if it's ours, it should be ours. We want to keep what we have and get more. Where we grasp and fight and cling and climb to work our way up the status ladder in people's perspective Jesus opened his hand and gave it all up and he instead of working his way up he came down instead of you know demanding that he be given the honor that was his due he took the shame that was not instead of grasping to make sure people knew how glorious he was he willingly humbly took the form of a servant, not a king. He was still a king, but he took the form of a servant, right? He, he humbled himself. Where we cover ourselves with pride, he humbled himself as a servant, and even to the point of death on a cross, right? Which, which in, is important because as, as horrible as the crucifixion was from a physical standpoint, and it was, the Romans devised crucifixion to not just be the death 
of the person who was crucified. They wanted it to be the total devastation of their personhood, right? The Romans devised crucifixion. There was a reason it was public. There was a reason someone was displayed in this involuntary affliction of weakness. There's a reason that they were, they were hung in a way that made them linger, right? There's a reason for all of these things. Why? Because it wasn't just to rob the, this person of, of life. It was to rob him of all human dignity. And in a, in a shame-honor culture like Rome, that was like the worst thing they could do to somebody. Right, which we're not, a, we're, we have a little bit of shame honor going on in our culture, but it's a little bit different. Like we're, we're kind of a fame poverty culture. If you're famous, you're going to get money. <laughs> people just chase fame. You can be famous for the stupidest things. Like you can be famous for nothing. If people start throwing money at you, they invite you onto shows, they want you to sponsor, wear my stuff, I'll pay you for this, right? Fame opens doors, poverty closes doors. Fame, right? In that culture, it was honor shame. So if you had honor, it opened all the doors. But if you had shame, it closed them all. And this was meant to shut somebody in to shame in a permanent and devastating way. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself of his right to be treated like God, to be seen in his glory. He emptied himself of the right to the experience of his glory. And instead, in a profound and amazing love, humbled himself with a purpose to redeem us from our shame and restore us to his glory. The king of glory not only became a servant, but humbled himself to being treated like a despised criminal. The creator, the most famous, the most powerful, the most significant, the most accomplished, the wealthiest, entered poverty to be despised by weak and frail humans, to be mistreated and abused at the hands of, of of people he was coming to save. The level of humility on display is profound. Where we fight to work our way up, he yielded his rights and voluntarily came down. Where we fight to cover ourselves with with glory or the image of glory or even stolen glory, the glory of things, the glory of accomplishments, the glory of physical beauty, the glory of whatever, he willingly set aside his intrinsic glory that was clothed with shame and the guilt of our sin. The king of glory voluntarily became our substitute on the cross as a criminal. He took our place. And listen to me, that shame that you feel, he took it. It's his. All of that guilt that you have, it's not yours anymore. He took it. 
He died under the weight of your guilt, and he died condemned under, under the despising eye of your shame. He became the embodiment of your sin. Willingly. Scripture tells us that he did it for the joy that was set before him. There was no joy in it, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? Your redemption. That you might realize your shame's been removed and that your guilt has been paid. He did it so that his glory can become yours. So that you can stop fighting, wrestling, trying so hard, exhausting yourself to be beautiful enough or accomplished enough or wealthy enough or intelligent enough or educated enough or, or whatever it is that you're chasing to try to cover yourself so that you can finally be worthy, finally be significant, finally be liked, finally be respected, finally live up to the image you have of yourself in your head. He died to free you from that insane slavery. And it's insane because no matter how hard you work at it, you'll never accomplish your goal. Even if you get to the top of the mountain you're trying to climb, it won't take you where you want to go. You will never be able to remove the shame or clothe yourself with the glory you crave. The king of glory became the embodiment of your shame to deliver you from the insane pursuit of your vain glory. The king of glory voluntarily became our substitute in judgment, taking our sin, dying our death that we could be freed from it for ourselves. Take a look at verses 9 through 11. There's an incredible transition that takes place right here. Starting in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I love that word, therefore especially in this context. Because think about it. What he's saying, right? Jesus, Jesus was humiliated, even though he himself never lost his glory. He took on the form of a servant, even going to the point of death on the cross where people intentionally sought to rob him, not only of his dignity, but his, but his very personhood, right? And then he rose again victorious over death because he paid the price of our death. He paid the price of our guilt. He was our perfect substitute. And when God was satisfied with the payment that was made, he was raised from the dead that we might be invited into the beauty of his resurrection, right? But here's, I want you to catch this. Therefore, listen, the resurrection, the glory that follows, right? Because then, then Paul sings the beautiful, insane praise and glory, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, lifted him up, right? Bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Man, that's glory. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Right? We're not told how, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, but, but there will come a point at which when the name of Jesus is uttered, every knee will bow because of the weightiness of that name and the glory intrinsic to his character. Therefore, that word therefore, what that tells us, listen to me, listen, what that tells us is that his exaltation didn't happen in spite of his degradation but because of it. 
His degradation wasn't a parenthesis in his glory. It was a manifestation of it. His degradation wasn't a a pause on his glory. It was actually what it looks like. What mankind measures as immeasurable shame and total humiliation, God saw as the manifestation of glory. Y'all, that's how messed up our understanding of glory is. (laughs) That is just how messed up we are when it comes to what's weighty what's worthy of praise, what's truly significant. Man, we measure all the wrong things. And we put weight on all the wrong things. We measure glory in terms of power. If somebody has a title or a political title or a celebrity title or a, you know, and we see this all the time, man. It's like whether it's a, oh man, there's a politician to come into town. I heard he's going to go speak at this church. Oh yeah, let's go, right? As if the fact that he's a politician in office makes him actually more significant than anybody else. Or a celebrity. When a celebrity becomes a Christian, that's one of my favorites. It's like, did you hear so-and-so became a believer? What a blessing for the kingdom of God. He's going to do so much good, right? As if that person could do more good than the lowliest person redeemed by the blood of Christ. Also created in the image of God, redeemed to live out that image. I'm telling you all. We are just messed up. We, we measure glory in terms of power, position, and possessions. God measures glory in terms of humility and love. I'm telling you right now, you are surrounded by some of the most glorious people living on the face of the earth right now, and no one even sees them. Because the true glory of God disappears in the glittering face, false glory of, of, of this world. True glory is measured in humility and love. Jesus was clothed not only with the glory that was intrinsic to him, like when he was on the cross, even when he was covered with the humiliations being heaped on him by man, he was still clothed and manifesting the glory of God. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he didn't see someone despised. He saw someone radiating with glory. Now, in the great mystery of God, of course, on the cross, he became the manifestation of our sin. And I don't understand that. I don't understand how that works, how the second person of the Trinity becomes the embodiment of our sin and pays the price of our guilt. I don't get it, right? That is so far above my pay grade, I can't even explain it to you. What I do know is that in his motivation, his motivation shone with the very glory of God. He was the manifestation of what was worthy of praise. Jesus now, having been raised, is clothed not only with the glory that was his in his pre-incarnate form as the Son of God, but now with the glory of being raised as the risen Son of Man. Jesus became human to redeem humanity, and now he is not just the true King of heaven as God, but now the true King of earth as man. He is the last Adam, the true human the one who will sit on the throne of David, reigning over humanity as a manifestation of the perfect expression of humanity, both God and man. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the day when his true glory is shown and actually realized. It's always been shown. It just wasn't seen. All right, so Philippians 2. 
beautiful in-depth study of the person of Christ, but remember the context here isn't just to, to, so that we can learn things about Christ, but so that, that we can become like Christ, right? Paul's arguing that, that this revelation of who Jesus is should, should free us in some beautiful ways. It's just free us from, from striving to prove ourselves and trying to outdo each other. And, 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 and it should free us from, from always trying so hard to be so impressive. So I want to give you three takeaways as we wrap this up. Three takeaways from the first couple of verses that we read. The first, seek community, not competition. Seek community, not competition. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from rivalry. Rivalry is competition. Rivalry is, is this insane, never-ending need of my comparing myself to you. Why do I compare myself to others? To find out how I measure up. <laughs> because if I measure up higher, I am what? Worthier. Somehow I attach my value to how I end up in that comparison. Rivalry is about my outdoing you so that I can be more important than you. Well, it kind of depends. If it's somebody that I really admire and I think they've got all the glory I want, I want to compare myself to them so that I can get closer to them. Closer to get, I get to them, the more, the more of their glory I shine with. If it's somebody I despise and I'm jealous of or envious of, I want to separate myself from them. I want to rise above them because my glory needs to outstrip them because I despise them and I don't want to have anything to do with what I despise, right? Rivalry. Rivalry is all about competition and comparison. It's all about measuring where do I stand in comparison to you. And it assumes, listen, it assumes a value system in which there is rank. It assumes that, that one person with greater rank is worth more than someone else with less rank. And competition is all about moving up the rank. Y'all, that's not real. Now, I know it's real in our culture. I know it's real in our world. I know we're told every single day that it's real, and we see people with higher rank having doors open to them, professional opportunities open to them, gifts being given to them, opportunities being given to them, right? We, we see that system at work in this world, but it's an insane system built on a lie. Those who rank higher in comparison to others are not worth more even though the world treats them as if they did. Competition is all about winning, the comparison. And it's rooted in selfish ambition, right? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Conceit there, vain ambition, this, this ambition of, of, of self-centered self-glory, this, this drive to move up the ladder, to get more to get more of what this world has to offer, right? To jump into this, this insane race thinking if I can get closer to the front of the pack, somehow I genuinely am closer to winning, right? It assumes that, that I can and I should rise over you and that I'm more significant when I do, right? And I should, because why? Because of vain ambition. I'm me. I should do better than you. I should be better than you. I should have more than you, Right? Listen, y'all, seek community, not competition, right? 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. How much should we do? Nothing? Like, you think you really meant that? Like, zero amount of our life should be motivated by this? Like, zero? I mean, how much of our lives is currently? A lot. For some of us, maybe all. He's like, no. Like, zero tolerance on this thing, man. Like, like do nothing out of comparison, competition, or a need to rise above others. Do nothing, right? Instead... In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. See, when I have the mind of Christ, when, when I see humility as glory, when I see the glory of God as something that invites me to rest instead of something that causes me to strive, it allows me to seek your good and your advancement instead of your defeat. It allows me to take joy in your success instead of being threatened by it without feeling diminished by it. It even allows me to consider you as actually more significant than me. Ooh. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like good self-therapy. <laughs> oh, well, it actually is. Um, because here's the thing. When I consider you as more significant than me, it doesn't mean I consider myself less significant. Well, we're not talking about imbibing a toxic shame in order to see people as more important than ourselves, right? I'm saying that, 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 that I'm not saying I'm not significant. I'm not saying I'm not valuable. What I'm simply saying is that I'm both in Christ, and that allows me to see you as more valuable, not as me less. You realize those things can be simultaneous. Like, I can actually respect myself and even respect you more. I can love myself and love you more. I can, I can consider myself worthy and consider you even more worthy. I can seek my good and actually seek your good even more. It doesn't mean we have to abuse ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to, 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 to despise ourselves, right? That's a false form of toxic humility where we actually think we're humble because we're humiliating ourselves, we're degrading ourselves, we're devaluing ourselves, right? No, that, that, that's not the point at all. We're to love others as we love ourselves. There's a, there's a fundamental assumption there that, that there is a healthy kind of self-love, a kind of love that recognizes I also am created in the image of God and because I am, I am worthy of love because God created me worthy of love. But it means I don't have to compare my worth to yours. It means I don't have to compete with my worth to yours. That allows me to, to simultaneously recognize I'm worthy of love, and so are you. In fact, I can consider you more significant than me without being diminished by your significance. See, when our motivation is love, when we share glory, we all gain in joy. When we live in community instead of in competition, it allows us to actually operate in the principles of love instead of greed, instead of keeping and taking. It allows us to give, to honor, and to bless. And we're all enriched as a community when we do that. So seek community, not competition. Second of all, seek service, not significance. All right, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, right? Seek service, not significance. To look out for another person's interests doesn't just mean noticing their needs. It means serving their needs, right? It's not enough to be like, oh, I see your need over there. Yeah, kind of like prayer requests. I see that hand. I see that hand, right? 
like, like to, to see it, to notice it is to, to do more than just to see it. It means to, to serve it. We shouldn't be showing up wondering when we can be noticed or what will increase our reputation. We shouldn't be showing up to compare our needs to other people's needs and wondering when our needs will be met. We need to be showing up looking for needs to meet. We need to be showing up looking for people to serve. Like Jesus, we need to put on the form of a servant. Listen, I have people all the time coming to me and saying, Steve, there's no, I, I'm frustrated with Trailhead, man. It seems like a closed system. I, I don't see how I can use my gifts at Trailhead. And my response is always the same. Like, really? Who's stopping you from using your gifts at Trailhead? Yeah, but well, I don't even know how to join the deacon team. Okay. Are you looking for a title in order to serve? Are you looking for, for a title or are you looking for an opportunity to serve? Because if you're looking for opportunities to serve, they're all over the place. If you're looking for a way to serve and to be a blessing, there are unending opportunities around you. But if you're looking for a platform on which to serve, yeah, that's limited. That's limited. See, if you're looking for a title to serve, it means that you're looking for a way to serve in order to feel significant. Instead of looking for a way to be significant through your service. There are never-ending opportunities around you to serve at all times. This is true in the workplace. This is true in the church. This is true in the family. If you're not concerned, if, you're, if your motivation isn't to get the credit, you'll be able to be a blessing. There are never-ending opportunities around you. And listen... I only entrust titles to people who don't need them. It's not safe to give somebody a title when they need that title. They'll only serve if they have that title. Those are people that will abuse the service in order to advance their significance. They're not serving from the right place of motivation. They're just not. Seek service, not significance. Seek to be a blessing, not to build a platform. If you seek service, listen, you'll discover genuine significance. You understand that, right? That's what Jesus teaches us. If you seek service, you'll actually discover genuine significance in the hidden acts of service, in, in the ways of blessing others in ways that others don't even know, in ways that keep you, keep you lowly and humble, you will actually become significant because you'll grow in your love for the people that you serve. God sees that service. That kind of service changes you. It doesn't just change how people see you, it changes you. But if you seek significance first, you'll miss both service and genuine significance. Thirdly, seek love, not glory. Final point. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Seek love, not glory. To have the mind that is yours in Christ Jesus means that you seek to see life like Jesus saw life. You seek to see glory like Jesus saw glory. You seek to, to recognize what is real and true as Jesus reveals it to be real and true, that this world isn't a place to accumulate the garnishes of worldly glory. It's a place to empty yourself of your need for glory 
to release your, your selfish, self-ambitious grasp on your need to impress others and to prove yourself and to simply take the form of a servant. To serve and to love, even when it's not sexy or applauded or, or, or win, winning you accolades, right? If our God of glory manifested his glory by emptying himself of his need to be seen as glorious. Do you not see that's the path to glory? Do you not see that as the path to genuine weightiness and significance? That's the path of sanity. And you're like, Steve, that, that's so different from everything the world tells me. Isn't that exactly what we should expect? The world is insane in its pursuit of trying to get the fullness of God apart from the God who gives it. Jesus invites us back to sanity. Because it's in loving and being loved that we find genuine significance. It's in loving and being loved that we find that, that we, we experience the genuine weightiness of soul that we crave. Listen, y'all, God is glorious. So we can rest in that glory. And we can stop trying to be so impressive. Let me close this word of prayer. We're going to share communion. And we're going to sing. Let me pray. Father, we thank you um, that, that, Lord, you don't, you, you are a humble God. You don't despise us because of our, our vanity, our, our, our foolishness. Lord, you look at the fig leaves we sow together of, of, of our jobs, our accomplishment, our titles, our income, our possessions. And Lord, you see desperate, broken, weak, and needy people grabbing things that, that um, are meaningless in and of themselves, honestly, and trying to clothe ourselves in them as if somehow that could change the reality of who we are. But Lord, you don't despise us in our weakness. You don't despise us in our foolishness. You are an amazingly humble God who loves us in spite of our foolishness. A God who meets us in our weakness. A God who entered our world not to expose us, not to own us, not to, to display our weakness like we so love to do to our enemies on social media. Lord, you came to meet us in our weakness and to restore our dignity. You came in our foolishness to restore our sanity. You came in our humiliation to restore our genuine experience of glory. Spirit, will you awaken our hearts to this? Will you give us an appetite for true glory? Will you give us an appetite for true significance? Not, not the emptiness of platforms, not, not the, the foolishness of fame, but the genuine significance that comes from actually loving and being loved, of generously giving that others might be blessed. Lord, form this in us. May we be a community that is free from our insane pursuit of trying to be impressive. We pray this in the humble and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen.